see more innovation in packaging and processing at Pack Expo International than anywhere else in the world. It's the show that defines where the industry is headed, with the solutions that define where your business can go. Discover cutting-edge packaging technology, processing equipment, new materials, sustainable solutions, supply chain resources, and much, much more. You'll walk away with innovative solutions to challenges big and small. Register at PackExpoInternational.com. You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, and welcome to Unpacked with PMMI. I'm your host, Sean Riley. Today, we welcome Hall of Fame legend, NFL player, and current Fox broadcaster, Howie Long. Raised by his grandmother and uncle in the rough-and-tumble Charleston section of Boston, Howie walks us through the many people in his life who sacrificed to help him as a football player and the new family he met and works with at Fox every week during the NFL season. Catch this episode while you can, as it will only be around for a few short weeks. So why don't we start there, Howie, the whole piece about how you started into football and where it was you came from, because you're not a native of uh, Pennsylvania. No, I, I grew up in, uh, in the city in Boston, uh, grew up in Charlestown, which uh, have you seen the movie, uh, the bank robbery movie with Ben Affleck and the town? Yeah, that was where I grew up, uh, raised by predominantly my grandmother. We didn't play organized sports there. You know, it's kind of a, a town where you just played in the streets, and when the street lights went on, you went, you went home. Um, busing became an issue in 75, I think. Desegregation and missed 60 days of school. My grandmother's raising me at this point because dad had left and uh, mom was struggling. And so my grandmother was kind of like the matriarch of the family. And one of my uncles had made it out of the neighborhood. He was the first person in the family to make it out of the neighborhood. She had four sons and one daughter, my grandmother. And she raised everyone pretty much independent of her husband who had passed away. My grandfather passed away before I was born. And she asked my uncle, Uncle Billy, who was working in the South Boston Projects, to uh, take me in. At that time, he had two kids, two adopted kids. And, um, you know, was kind enough. And I, the older I get, the more I kind of appreciate what a sacrifice that is. Try to imagine here you are at, you know, 52 and you've got four kids, two, you know, two of them adopted. And you're working in the projects, you're painting houses on the weekend. You're barely, barely getting by to, you know, to live in the suburbs. And uh, I had never played organized sports until then. Uh, so it was my sophomore year. I'm 15 years old. I had never played organized sports. Coach sees me walking down the hallway, and uh, Dick Corbin was his name, who, who ended up going on to coach at Harvard. Uh, and he said, you know, what's your name? I said, Howie, and would you like to play football? And I'm, you know, maybe 210, 6'3", as a 15-year-old. <clears throat> And, and I said, you know, sure. And, you know, I figured out how to put the equipment on and, you know, wasn't a very good football player. And, 
ended up being a 6'5", 220-pound, 16-year-old my senior year, uh, turned 17 in January. So now they're telling me that there's maybe a chance that I could get a scholarship. I wasn't even, you know, couldn't even comprehend that. Uh, coming from where I came from and having played so little uh, football, uh, one scholarship was to Boston College and one was to Villanova. And my grandmother, you know, based on what you saw in the movie, which was a pretty accurate depiction to a great extent. There are a lot of great people. Not everyone's a bank robber. Not everyone's stealing cars. Not everyone's murdering people. I mean, it's just not the case. But certainly we had our share of, of folks who were kind of on the wrong side of things. In her infinite wisdom, uh, she kind of pushed me to go to Villanova and uh, get out of town. So I go to Villanova, and I've literally had the clothes on my back, not a penny in my pocket. I don't have a driver's license. I'm 6'5", 225. I go down there and get a meal card that summer. I open camp at 6'5", 262. I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much the weight I am right now, <clears throat> and a little bit shorter because I've been beaten down. So I'm 6'4 and a half. And I'm a 17-year-old who is really not prepared for Villanova from an academic standpoint or from a financial standpoint. But I'm living in a dorm, I have a meal card, uh, I end up getting a job at Kelly's, which is the bar down the street in Bryn Mawr, which you're familiar with. I'm making maybe 10 bucks a night, uh, working two days a week, uh, and, and being a college football player, which at that time you really weren't supposed to do. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm an okay football player at 17, but really needed, I'm not shaving yet, I mean, I'm, I'm really an immature kid. But I had a place to stay. And for four years, I was there, you know, from September, Thanksgiving, Christmas, spring break, summer school, for four straight years. Because when you leave Uncle Billy's, who was strapped with me there at the house, uh, there's really no place to go back to. So when I left, it was there and uh, fortunate enough to meet my wife, Diane, there, and uh, played four years there. And oddly enough, it was kind of one of those deals where I played in high school against a kid named Joe Rustic, who ends up going to Notre Dame when Rudy was there. And, he, you know, Rudy goes down. Everyone's seen the movie Rudy, I'm sure. He goes down the list, and Joe Rustic's on the list. He ends up being the captain at Notre Dame. His dad was the coach at Harvard for 22 years. And now my high school coach is at Harvard, Dick Corbin's at Harvard with Joe Rustic Sr. And Joe Rustic Sr. happened to be on the blue-gray game, which is, you know, I don't think they even play the game anymore, but it was in Alabama on Christmas Day. So Christmas week, they gave you the opportunity, kind of like the Senior Bowl or the East-West Shrine game, only a smaller version of that. Um, a player gets hurt or opts out of the game. They call me on a Monday uh, because... As, as I mentioned, Joe Rustic Sr. is on the selection committee, and I get the opportunity to go down there and play in a bowl game, and we, I think we played on TV once. We bust to games. We stayed three to a room in George Washington Motor Lodge. <clears throat> you know, but it was the best four years to that point in my life, you know, having met my wife there and everything else. But Jimmy Johnson is at Oklahoma State at the time. He's the coach of the South the North team, which is ironic. Uh, and, and I end up winning the MVP. And during the course of the week, you know, scouts are there, agents are there, no one's speaking to me. 
and suddenly I'm kind of on the radar, and now I have to work out for, I think I did 32 workouts. I ran on the front lawn of my dorm uh, for a scout who just was checking a box. I'm a kid from Villanova. No one's got me on their radar. Uh, I ended up getting drafted in the second round by Oakland, and that's kind of the early, that's how I got to Villanova and how I got to the Raiders. Didn't get any better. So as part of your playing career, you went to the Super Bowl relatively early. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned was that understanding of what it meant as a player. Well, I thought naively, you know, that, you know, I've got players, Lyle Alzado, Bill Pakel, Greg Townsend, uh, Matt Millen, Rob Martin, Lester Hayes, Mike Davis. You know, Mike Haynes is one of the best players I've ever played with. And, you know, on offense, you had Marcus Allen, you had Cliff Branch, and, you know, uh, Raymond Chester, you know, great players. I thought, this is easy. You know, we're going to go back every year. We ended up never going back after 83. Uh, got there, got there, got there, but didn't get over the hump. Uh, and what kind of crystallized that for me was, we had a player named Lyle Alzado, who, oddly enough, in 82, they made the decision to move to L.A. So I'm in Oakland my rookie year, we're practicing in Oakland and playing in L.A. So now I've got a kind of a, my wife's down in L.A. going to USC Law School. She's graduated Villanova. She's down in L.A. going to USC Law School. But I'm up in, in, in Oakland still practicing every day and flying. Every game was a road game. And Lila, we had to kind of find roommates and, you know, it was kind of a makeshift kind of deal. And Lyle picked me to be his roommate. I'm 22 years old. He's 34. He's, you know, played in Denver, played in Cleveland. He's with us. He's been to the Super Bowl but lost. And he's chasing, you know, what everyone's chasing, particularly if you haven't won a Super Bowl by the end of your career. And Lyle picks me to stay at the Oakland Airport Hilton with him in a, in a, in a regular room with two queen beds. So I'm living with Lyle Alzado in a room, and his, his RPM meter, his mood ring goes from zero to dark very quickly. And it was an amazing experience living with him. And we always, oddly enough, we always took a cap to the game. Uh, as soon as we got down to L.A., the first trip we went down to L.A., to, to give you a kind of a perspective, the rest of the team, they go to pregame meal, they go back up to the room, hang around the hotel for a couple of hours. We like to get to the stadium. He'd get dressed, he'd lie on the floor, he'd fall asleep. I would get dressed and I would go through every formation, every tendency, every, everything they're running out of split backs, half, eye formation, three wide receivers. I'm trying to fill my head. Lyle didn't even care what the formation was. Lyle just played on his own kind of instinct and you know he'd ask me periodically hey what's that formation with one back and two tight ends I'm 23 years old I said it's dot formation we called it dot one back two tight ends <clears throat> so we take a cab that first week in LA and we say we're going to the stadium and the cab driver barely speaks English and uh, we don't know where we're going so he, I, we're assuming he knows that we're going to the Coliseum which is where we played at USC plays there he takes us to Dodger Park. <laughs> now the meter is in the red. He wants to choke the driver. 
And so we've got to we've got to get back down to the to, you know back down to the Coliseum from up where the Dodgers play. So fast forward to the Super Bowl that year, and you know try imagining that now, because you know one after 9/11 we had the Super Bowl as a broadcast group after 9/11 we had the first Super Bowl down in New Orleans, and when I tell you everything changed after 9/11, that entire stadium was blocked off three blocks from the stadium with concrete barriers, SWAT teams on the roof. I mean, there was no way you could do what we did. We got in a cab after pregame meal like we did every week. Football players are very superstitious, like I think athletes are across the board. Whether it's where you eat, what you eat, you know, how you drive to work, it could be any crazy thing that you think is going to kind of dictate whether you win or lose or play well. So for us, it was taking a cab to the game. So here we are in Tampa, Florida. We take a cab to the game, just like we do every week. We get stuck in traffic three-quarters of a mile from the stadium by the parking lot. <clears throat> we can't get the cab driver to go up on the curb. Lyle's angry. He's banging the door. We get out, and Lyle Alzado and I walk through the parking lot through tailgaters three-quarters of a mile. And now the meter is back on red. So it, it, somebody could be in trouble if you make the wrong move, you say the wrong thing. If you touch him, it's over. But the one thing that kind of hit home for me with him was he's 34, I think 34 years old at that time. As the clock is winding down, I see this guy who's a card-carrying bad man. You know, I mean, some guys are, you know, they're, they're selectively tough. Lyle's tough from the moment he wakes up to the moment he gets to bed, and if you wake him up, he's tough again. And it's 24-7. That's who he is. The tears are running down his face. And I'm 23 years old. I'm thinking, we're going to be back here again. Why is he crying? That hit home with me. That kind of crystallized, you know, what he had been through. All, all the games he played, the you know, two teams he played at before us. He'd been to the Super Bowl, got blown out, wasn't successful. And for him to be a champion at 34 was everything to him. That's a great story to recognize just what it means personally yeah. to a, a player. So you're 12 years a Raider. You've gone 13. 13 years a Raider. You've that gone year, through... every year is a dog year, so don't <laughs> yeah. don't miss. We'll one multiply that. Yeah, don't miss. That was Operation on Eight and Nine. <laughs> Eight Pro Bowls. Yeah. And now you've also got. Uh, the ownership with Al Davis, and you've got multiple coaches. Talk a little bit about how you had to deal with the different coaching that you went through. Well, I had a coach, and ironically enough, a guy named Earl Leggett. One, you go to an organization, and a lot of organizations have owners who have kind of a rudimentary understanding of football. And, and you know, I'm not, being, I'm not slighting them. They certainly have been successful in whatever business they've been in. And you're going to buy an NFL team, you're a successful person. But being a successful person in business doesn't necessarily translate to being a football mind. Al Davis coached in, 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 the, uh, in the early league uh, prior to the FL. He was a commissioner of the league. He could walk in and coach any position on our team. He was at every practice. It's funny because... I just remember it like it was yesterday. He wore this unique cologne, I think, that was just made for him. And you knew when he came out of the building, I mean, if there was a little wind up in Alameda, you could smell him before you saw him. And it was a distinct smell. 
And he would kind of walk to every position. He'd be at every period. He'd ask you, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about uh, the left guard? And at that time, I wasn't about names because at that time there was no kind of communication with opponents. I think John Elway and I played against each other from 83 to 94. And I never spoke to him. Uh, we just didn't communicate. There's no, there's no cell phones. There's no FaceTime. There's no Twitter. There's no way of communicating. And, and my job wasn't to be friends with him. My job was to, you know, essentially get after John Elway. And I didn't want to be friends with him. It kind of tinkered with my mindset. Um, it's just an interesting time in how things change. Uh, it really is. Yeah, a big, a big change. In but, the but being in an organization that you've got a Hall of Fame owner in Al Davis, you've got a Hall of Fame GM in Ron Wolf, who built the expansion Tampa Bay team, built our team, and went on to resurrect the Green Bay Packers and made the, you know, the Reggie White acquisition, the Brett Favre trade that is now kind of famous. Uh, the patience that they had to develop players. We, we kind of live in an attention deficit kind of society where, in, particularly in football, where we want it now. And at times it takes someone one, two years. Second half of my year two was kind of when I figured it out. And year three was my first full year as a starter. And, uh, you know, go to the Pro Bowl All-Pro and Defensive Lineman of the Year. And I'm still making 48 grand. <laughs> My kids laugh hysterically about that. So we, we make the transition. Hall of Fame player, you decide you want to continue your career, you love football, and the new network starts, Fox Sports. Well, I think you have to, one, I think you have to have, it, it, like with any comp, whether it's this or it's football or basketball, it, you know, whether it's business, it starts at the top. I think the guy at the top sets the tempo. And for us, it was David Hill. David Hill was an Australian who came over here in 93, just when I was retiring. I hadn't told anyone at the Raiders I was going to retire, and I just went to the Super Bowl. I went to the Pro Bowl my last year and decided to retire. So David Hill's Australian. He could be quoting passages from classic, you know, uh, poets one minute and drinking shots of tequila with you the next and screaming. You know, I don't know whether that's an Australian thing or not, but he was that kind of guy. So his perspective was he ran Sky TV and, you know, it was soccer, it was rugby, it was racing, formula racing, all that. Um, he had a different idea of how to do things. He said, one, at that point, and it's hard to imagine in today's world, uh, no pregame show was on for more than a half hour. And we do a live format, and a lot of the programs that were on taped half or three-quarters of their show. And his perspective was, we're going to do an hour. We're going to do an hour, and we're going to add this other thing that, you know, we can't imagine not having now, the score box at the bottom of the screen, which shows, you know, not only the score, but the time remaining in the quarter. Could you imagine not surviving without that? You couldn't. But when we did it, it was blasphemy. It was, you know, what is this? There was concern that because Fox at that point, I mean, what were they? You know, Fox Network was The Simpsons and a couple of cartoons and, 
you know, I don't know what else was on the air, but it wasn't much. So he started with the acquisitions of, you know, obviously John Madden, Pat Summerall, Terry Bradshaw, Jimmy Johnson, myself, um, and went from there. And it was literally Fox Sport, and we're going to do it differently. It's going to be a different attitude. It's going to be a different way of presenting the game. Our show was off the cuff. We don't rehearse a lot of stuff. Our show's all live, with the exception of a complicated football field demonstration. You know, where you, maybe we're at the Naval Academy and we've got some midshipmen's, you know, being involved in it. You don't want the midshipmen to be embarrassed or, or screw up. And, you know, so we do it ahead of time and we make sure they're, they look good and you want to make sure they have a great experience. Um, which requires a really good group of guys. Uh, you know, Jimmy, Terry, Terry, who's, he's like a savant. I mean, you know, he, what you see is what you get. And I think the great thing about our show is because we do more things live, we don't over-rehearse. What Terry says, I think the joke becomes rehearsed and stale the third time around. I think when you're doing it live, it, it gives you the opportunity, your reaction to what, I had a dog back in 62 named Bubba, and Bubba just, he, one night I go out, and he's, he's running around the yard, running around the yard, running around the yard, and all of a sudden Bubba drops. And, you know, he's got us all kind of, you know, mesmerized. I'm picturing the poor dog just died. He said, no, he, he got into a can of gas in the garage, and he just ran out of gas. <laughs> and we're thinking the dog died. But that's a great example of Terry. You know, he, he's kind of like a, a Milton Berle, Bob Hope, classic entertainer. If he died on stage, he'd be happy. I mean, I've been on aircraft carriers with him in the Mediterranean. I've been to Afghanistan. We've been at every kind of military installation, you know, and, and, and also West Point, the Naval Academy, Coast Guard, the whole thing. We've got the Air Force Academy left to do. We did Doha this year. Um, spent, it'll be 30 years this year. He and I have been together. And like I said, we couldn't be any closer and we couldn't be any more different. So I know you've, you've spoken about it being live and you, you want to do it unscripted. We had Sarah Thomas, one of the NFL referees uh, last year, and frankly, we're stunned at the amount of prep work that she did. Uh, mm -hmm. As an NFL referee talked about going to the game and then reviewing video and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there must be some prep work by this group. Um, I'm not sure what Terry's prep work is. It, it's, he's taken that, and I'm dating myself, but he's taken that all shucks, Jed Clampett thing all the way to the bank. And that's Beverly Hillbillies, for those of you who are too young to remember. Uh, he's brilliant. And his thing is not necessarily X's and O's or fronts or coverages. You know, when there's a quarterback to, to have an opinion on, he has that. But <clears throat> he's more of the entertainment piece. Uh, I'm more of, you know, I've, I've downloaded, printed out, 250 pages a week. I'll highlight, I'll write in the margins, I'll pare that down to a notebook, and then we'll have four sections, and I'll use 2% of what I've prepared for. Now, that being said, the other 98% could come into play week two, week three, week six, week eight, something that I is in the back of my mind 
that I saw, read about, or watched on film in week one. So I took the way I prepared for the game. Like, for example, you have two sons that play college football. I'd always watch their three previous, their opponents' three previous games. (laughs) And I would give them, they call it the old man text. You know, because if you're old, you text, your texts are long. Uh, and, and I would break down every conceivable thing that they could look for. How much of that contributed to their success? I don't know. But it, it certainly made me sleep better. You know, that's kind of my way of doing things. We all have a different approach. Uh, Michael's is, you know, he's kind of an entertainer. He's, he's on. He, he gets it. Jimmy was more, uh, you know, occasionally he, he would do a kind of an awkward old man dance or something that would crack everybody up. But he can go into that coach mode real quick. So everyone brought something a little bit different to the table. And when you're talking about a show that's live, you've got five sections. And in the five, like for the Super Bowl, we had 28 sections. And in those 28 sections, it's live, but the format breakdown in a tight window where you've got 20, 25 seconds to make your point, you you know it's Jimmy, it's Terry, it's Michael, it's Howie. Then the next section is Michael, Terry, Jimmy, Howie. So you've got to know that in all 28 sections, and it comes on you pretty quick and fast, and there's a lot going on at the Super Bowl, and you've got this group of people that they've let in early to the stadium on our outdoor set, and they're drunk and screaming like crazy. Philadelphia fans are great. Have a son who won a Super Bowl there. They love, they love their football in Philadelphia, but it was loud. You can't, we have these sound blocking earpieces in that are form fitted for your ears, and they really don't work. I can't hear what Terry's saying next to me. It's so loud outside. So it's a challenge. That's all the time we have right now. I'd like to thank Howie for joining us for a conversation with Howie Long. Thank you, guys. Please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.